58 this morning, which as um, Jillian mentioned earlier, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, is page 526 in that Bible, Isaiah 58. Now we've been talking for the past couple weeks about the topic of money and possessions and about how God would have us view our money and possessions, which is a touchy topic for sure. Uh, A preacher once paid a visit to a farmer and asked, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? And the farmer said, sure would. And the preacher said, if you had two cows, would you give one to the Lord? And the farmer said, yep, I would. And uh, then the preacher said, if you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? And the preacher said, now that's not fair. Or I'm sorry, the farmer said, now that's not fair, preacher. You know I have two pigs. (laughs) (laughs) So given the touchiness and the awkwardness of this topic, how important is this topic really? Is it worth spending a whole four sermons on? I mean, yeah, I could always prioritize my money a little bit better, just like I could always pray a little more or be a little more patient with others. But is how I handle my money really such a big deal? After all, I don't hear many other preachers talking about finances that often or or see many best-selling Christian books being written on the topic. So how big a deal could it really be? Is how I'm spending my money really as big a deal in God's eyes as, let's say, who I'm sleeping with or who I am or am not cheating or stealing from? Well, hopefully this morning's passage in Isaiah will give us some perspective on things. But first, a story of sorts. Where I grew up, there weren't many traffic lights. Uh, I lived on a small country road which wound its way over and around countless hills and along the way intersected with other narrow, windy roads, some of them paved, some of them not paved. And most of these roads were unmarked. They didn't have lines on them. And this was fine during the daytime, but, but it could be tough at night. I remember many times as a teenager driving back from a friend's house late at night And it often got quite foggy at night. Sometimes it was raining and it was pitch black. There were no street lights. And so visibility was poor. And I would be trying to stay on the road and out of the ditches or out of the farmer's fields. But it was hard to see where one ended and the other began in that kind of visibility. And so I was always glad when I turned onto one of the roads that did have yellow lines in the middle. Because on these roads, the lines made it easier to see where I was going and to stay on course. Well, living the Christian life can be like navigating a country road at night. Life gets foggy very often. It, it um, gets complicated and, and complex. So sometimes life seems less black and white and more like a million shades of gray. And... and Also, we all experience drift. We lose perspective and often we're confused as to what's really important in life and to God. I know over the years, I've attended a number of different churches and each one seemed to have a different idea about what God was concerned about most. One church I attended said what we really needed to do was to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Another church said that what we really needed to do was to be involved in cross-cultural missions. Another church said, no, what we really needed to do was pursue racial reconciliation. And then I'd read 
convicting Christian books about how what I really should be doing is reading my Bible more or spending more time in intercessory prayer. And, and so as I go through my life, I think, oh, oh, this is what God really wants. No, oh, oh, that's what God really wants. And over time, all these different messages got scrambled in my brain and, and left me feeling confused and stressed. And then I'd go out and I'd live in the world, which would just tell me not to take any of that too seriously, but to sit back and enjoy the good life. And so as we go through life, it can be a bit like driving on a country road on a foggy night. We may ask ourselves, I know I've asked myself, am I really at the center of what God wants for my life? Or am I wandering off track? And if I'm not exactly on track, how much does it really matter? And how can I know anyway? And how big a deal is all this money stuff that the preachers have been harping on for the past few weeks? Well, these have always been the kinds of questions and struggles that God's people have had. And into such situations, God has periodically sent his prophets to come and to paint a bright yellow line for us right down the middle of God's will. The prophet's words have a way of cutting through the fog and the mist and, and telling it like it is to, to restore our perspective and to make things clear for us again. And that's what Isaiah 58 is all about. Isaiah here is addressing a group of people who have lost perspective and who have gotten off track. Now, when I read this chapter and when I begin... In the first few verses, I think that if I'd met this group of God's people, on first impression, I'd be quite impressed and encouraged by their faith and their devotion to God. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff right. Look at what God says about them in verses 2 to 3. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Now, I'm reading the NIV, but... Actually, if you check just about any other translation here, the text literally says not that they seem eager to know God's ways, but that they delight to know God's ways. The NIV translators have read the rest of the chapter, and so they're assuming that these people can't really be eager. But that's what the text actually says. They delight to know God's ways. It goes on as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager, or better again, they delight for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I think that if these people were around today, they would be the ones who we would hold up as models. They'd be the ones who have their daily devotions who read books about how to live a godly life, who listen to sermons on their MP3 players during the week or as they drive to work, who, who go off on prayer retreats, who go to special courses and conferences. They want to know God. They want to learn His commands. They want to discover God's will for their lives. They want a word from God. They, they, um, they don't give up pursuing Him. They're seeking Him out. They're even fasting. They're, they're um, hungering for God's presence. They're humbling themselves to, to seek their God out. On the surface of things, 
to anyone who looks at their lives, these people look like good, faithful, godly people who follow God's commands obediently. They think they are. I think if we're honest, they put some of us to shame. They are, are really into their walk with God. They're, they're really serious about pursuing God. They, they have a passion and a hunger for God. Yet, according to the beginning of verse 3, somehow they sense that for all of their seeking, they aren't finding God. They sense that God isn't really present with them. They ask God, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I wonder, would we notice if God wasn't present with us? Could it be that, that we just assume as an article of belief that God is present with us and so we take it for granted and we assume that it's true, but, but do we assume that even if week after week we have very little evidence that God actually is present with us? Could it be that our expectations are way too low? But how do we know for sure? Again, this is where we need the prophet's yellow line painted straight down the middle of the road. And in the case of the people Isaiah is addressing here, Isaiah agrees with the fact that God is not present with them. And as to the reason why, he points his finger straight at several matters, including their finances. Despite all these people's zealous and, and faithful devotion, God has five serious concerns in this chapter about their religion. All five have to do with how they treat other people. And in three of the five, as we'll see, finances are in some way involved. First of the five, in verse three, these people are exploiting their workers. They're taking advantage of the hired help. Maybe they're expecting them to work unpaid overtime. Maybe they're uh, making them work in unsafe working conditions. Maybe they're uh, paying them the wages that the market will bear, even though it's not enough to support a family on. Second, in verse 4, these people are engaging in quarreling and strife, even striking one another with wicked fists. Praying fervent prayers at church, but then coming home and, and maybe bickering and arguing with their spouses or perhaps abusing family members verbally or physically, or maybe at work they're disputing with their coworkers or business partners. Third, in verse 9, they're placing a yoke of oppression on the poor and the needy. In other words, they're benefiting from an economic system where the have-nots remain poor, where they work hard and never get ahead, while the haves benefit from the system, living in comfortable homes, enjoying plentiful consumer goods and services. Fourth in verse 9, they're engaging in the pointing finger and malicious talk. Now this can include everything from lawsuits to saying things about people you wouldn't say if they were there in the room to hear it. Fifth and finally in verse 13, and perhaps most surprisingly of all, that God would be so concerned about this. These people are failing to honor God's Sabbaths. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the shorter answer is that the Sabbath is integrally connected with how people, uh, or how we treat people, and how we handle our finances. Throughout the Old Testament, Sabbath is tied to social and to economic justice. 
Sabbath means you don't work your slaves or your employees to death. You give them a day off each week to rest and to spend with their families. Eugene Peterson, who's written some great stuff on the Sabbath, also observes that Sabbath is meant to subvert our drive to work and to earn and to build wealth. Sabbath forces us to stop, to to rest, and it forces us to consider the one who's given us the strength to work and who's blessed us with our job and our income in the first place if we have a job. So notice here that all of God's concerns with this people has to do with how they treat others. These people are doing all the right stuff on the, on the vertical dimension in the relationship with God, but they're completely failing on the horizontal dimension of loving other people. That's the yellow line in the road. Now, if it were only Isaiah who was sending this message, I would be guilty of preaching a pet sermon in search of a scripture passage to support it. But if you have read through your Bible yourself, then you know that this message is the repeated refrain of God's Old Testament law, of the Old Testament prophets, of the wisdom writings, and of Jesus himself and the apostles after him. Just as one example of the the literally hundreds of verses we could look at, consider 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother... He's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And John agrees with Isaiah here that we we can't talk about loving our brother without our pocketbook becoming intimately involved in the discussion. Up a few verses, verses 17 to 18 of 1 John 4. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So the logic here is simple. If you aren't loving the people around you, you aren't really loving God. And if you see a brother or sister in need and you have the means to help them, but you don't share with them, then you aren't loving the people around you. And therefore, you're not loving God either. And so it seems all your other religious activities are worthless. How's that for a yellow line painted down the middle of the road? Let's look at how God puts this in Isaiah 58. We see it. um, We see two expressions of love for our neighbor in this passage. First, in verse six, we see that God desires for his people that we live out a life of justice, that we stand up for justice. And in this context, he seems to be talking about social and economic justice. Verse 6, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, God says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? God wants us, as his people, to spend ourselves in in doing what we can to make sure that the playing field is fair for everyone. So that people have a fair chance to get a good education and to, to make a living wage. All people, no matter what their color or their race or their gender, 
or the neighborhood or the background or the nationality that they come from. I can't resist the urge to quote one of my favorite singers, Bono here. He sings in a U2 song, Crumbs from the Table. Where you live shouldn't decide whether you live or whether you die. That's the justice that God's talking about here. Second, in verses 7 and 10 of this passage, Isaiah says, God wants us to be compassionate toward the poor. Is not what I desire to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God expects us to care for the needy, to get personally and significantly involved in helping those in need. Notice again, this is horizontal stuff. It's about loving other people. The Bible cannot imagine a love for people which won't at some point involve sharing our homes and our bank accounts with them. Again, Scripture doesn't count our love for God worth anything unless we're loving our neighbor as well. Rather, it says in Proverbs 19:17, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will, repay, he will reward him for what he has done. And Proverbs 14:31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Now, this stuff may sound hard, especially on a hot, humid morning. Why does God require all of this from us? Why, why does, does God want us to sacrifice? Does, does God get joy in seeing us unhappy, making life hard for us? No, it's exactly, it's actually just the opposite. God knows that when, when or I'm sorry, God knows that that these are the things, these things that Isaiah is talking about, these are the things which in the end will make us truly happy. The idea that we'll be happy if we just get everything we want is a farce. It's peddled diligently by the marketing establishment, but it hasn't worked for anyone yet. You know, the day it works, they'll take all the uh, commercials off the TV and say, well, you're all happy now, that worked. But they still keep coming because it doesn't work. You see, God knows because God has created us that happiness actually comes through blessing others. You know, there's actually scientific evidence now to demonstrate this fact. They've found the actual neurological mechanisms that release happy feelings in us when we serve others. George Bernard Shaw put it well. He, he once said, this is the true joy of life being used up for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. But even more, God knows that we're made to find our delight in him. We each have a God-shaped hole, as Blas Pascal famously put it, and only the Almighty can fill it. And so God longs to come to us and to, to bless us and to satisfy us with his own loving presence. But too often, it's our own lack of love for others and therefore our lack of true love for God which get in the way. Listen to verses 8 and 9. 
in our text here in Isaiah, where God gives a promise to all who will heed Isaiah's message here and, and who will renew their concern and their love for those around them. God promises, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he'll say, here am I. And in verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God is longing to draw us close. God is longing to, to heal us, to be present with us, to delight us with himself. But it isn't our devotions and our worship services alone through which we come back to him. In fact, we can be doing all that well. We can, we can have a church which is well-functioning and, and friendly and relevant and, and growing, and God can still call us, as in verse 1, a rebellious and a sinful people. All right, let's try to bring this up to date. We live in the 21st century. We're American Christians, and we're products, by and large, of contemporary evangelical culture. That's what we know, and we've been shaped, to some extent at least, by this culture that we're familiar with. And so let's try to get some perspective. Remember last week I said that if we want to see what our priorities are, we shouldn't look at our hearts. We should look where? At our checkbooks. Did some of you do that this week? I hope. I hope you will if you haven't. Well, for American Christians in general, Ron Sider has done that among other people. And in his book, One-Sided Christianity, he goes on, or he goes over some of the numbers. This was maybe 10 years ago. He observed that according to the national checkbook, or um, the world checkbook, in fact, as well, the Christians in the world make up 33% of the world's population, and yet we receive 62% of the world's income. God has blessed us. Further, Christians spend 97% of this income with which God has blessed us on ourselves. We spend 2% on our churches, and we spent less than 1% on missions. He also points out that in the U.S., while evangelical Christians spend $2 billion on missions annually, they spend $8 billion on weight reduction programs. Four times as much. So whatever else we want, may want to say about the priorities of American evangelicals, the cold hard facts reveal that we spend four times more money on getting into that smaller sized outfit than we do on the work of Jesus around the world. That's the culture we're a part of. That's the normal we see all around us as Christians in America. Contrast that perspective with the perspective of the early church. I read a couple years ago a, a book about the early church, and, and did you know that in the first few hundred years of the Christian church, they wouldn't even baptize you as a Christian unless you demonstrated that you had faith in Christ and love for God by living a simple and a frugal life and by caring for the needs of the poor. They wouldn't even baptize you. 
And if a Christian back then became ostentatious and started accumulating significantly more than they needed, that person was warned. And if they didn't repent, they were put out of the church for the sin of greed. Greed is a sin. It's in the Bible, if you look. Here's a quote that I came across in this book from a first century, or sorry, a second century manual uh, used to prepare candidates for baptism. It asks of the candidates, have they lived good lives? Have they honored the widows? That is, have they provided for the financial needs of the widows? Have they visited the sick? Have they done every kind of good work? In other words, if you wanted to become a Christian, they didn't look for evidence that you had faith in Christ in the fact that you'd prayed a quick prayer in a service or you'd raised your hands at a rally, but rather they looked for evidence of your faith in whether you were loving people in practical ways, including financial ways. Now that may seem strange to us. It might even seem troublesome to us, but in the early years of Christianity, it seemed to them to be the best representation of what it meant to live out biblical Christianity, to demonstrate that you actually believed in Jesus. Could it be that we in the affluent West have drifted far from the center of the road? Well, if so, God wants us back. God wants us back because God longs to, to draw close to us. God longs to delight us with himself. And God wants us back because giving and generosity and service are what God created us for. To be truly human is to love and to give. It's not to consume and to accumulate. That's a twisted, warped, worldly perspective that's being perfected in our own culture. God wants us back because when we come again to delight in God more than in our possessions, we know the joy and the delight that we can't experience in any other way. So here's the challenge for this morning. John Wesley, one of the great um, preachers, Christian leaders of the Second Great Awakening who had a profound impact on the Western world, once said, um, he gave some basic advice on, on how to honor God with your finances. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. First, earn all you can. Don't be lazy. Don't sponge off any, someone else. Work hard. Do good work and earn an honest living. That was the first thing. Second, save all you can. Be frugal. Live simply. Be content to buy only the basic necessities of life for yourself and, and hold on to the rest. Save the rest so that third, you can give all you can out of what you've saved. Give all you can to God's purposes and to those in need. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Now, I realize that as 21st century American Christians, many of us have a lot of room for improvement. So this can feel overwhelming. Many, many American Christians have, have learned their financial habits from the surrounding culture or from their families, and they've never really exposed this part of our lives to the teaching of God's word. 
And changing lifelong habits and values is a big task. So the challenge is, what's your next step? What's the one thing that you need to do first? Do you need to work so that you, um, so that you, you, uh, you have some finances to deal with? Work so that you can earn? I know that's easier said than done in this economy. But maybe there are a few of you out there who could be working but are taking life easy instead. Maybe you're sponging off your parents. Um, do you need to earn? Second, for others of us, is it that you need to, to save more? That you need to, to cut back on satisfying desire after desire, those never-ending desires that we all have, that you need to bring them under control? Is your spending under control? Do you need to learn to make a budget and, and to stick with it? Do you need to save all you can? Or is it that you need to give all you can, that you need to give more? Instead of investing so much in your own future and comfort, do you need to trust God with that future and to give more toward those who have no future? if it doesn't come through the generosity of the people of God, who are God's hands and feet, showing God's love and care. So where do you need to begin? That's the challenge. And as we consider this challenge, listen again to God's promise for those who follow that yellow line and bring their financial lives back, step by step, onto the center of God's path. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Amen.